Black does crack. And not only with the latest revelation of melanated skin needing SPF, the realization that black people in various communities and cultures crack emotionally, spiritually, and mentally. We can no longer afford to merely be strong and fall under the whips on our back in the form of racism, generational trauma, abuse, miseducation, incarceration, and the list goes on. We are tired and can no longer be silent. In need of release, internal peace, and resources to feed what we see. Black does crack. Let's talk about it. This Around the Way girl wants to chat with you. She's discovering new information in this world that surrounds her, tapping into her inner power, her sexuality, and taking ownership of her insecurities. She discovered she had to unlearn some things. Come and enjoy her moments of reflection, re-education, redefinition, and evolution. Kick back, sip some wine, take a drive, whatever your vibe. Join me, your host, Shay Sana, with She Discovered Podcast. So stay tuned. You might learn some things. Today's informative episode is graced with Dr. Tiffany Llewellyn, a highly trained licensed clinical social worker, passionate speaker, and transformative consultant. Dr. Llewellyn is the owner and clinical director at Llewellyn Wellness and Consulting, LLC. She is also the president and founder of the faith-based nonprofit organization, Adventists for Social Justice, a movement focused on developing faith-based churches for activism in marginalized communities. Over the years, I've truly witnessed Tiffany embody the spirit of advocacy amongst our people, and it is an honor to have her on. Thank you so much for agreeing to come on She Discovered podcast so we can really tap into not only men- mental health in general, but mental health in the Black communities. Oh, thank you for having me. Of course, of course. I wanted to start off with an article I read written by you back in May of 2020 for a message online magazine called Black Does Crack, the impact of race-based stress on Black bodies. In the article, you quote Dr. Francois Hamlin, Associate Professor of History and Africana Studies at Brown University, where she says, with cell phones and body cameras, we see Black people die every day. We are all witnesses, and every death cuts deep as though one of our own kin had perished. She further suggests that in spite of such a national and even global viewing of state-sanctioned violence, there is a denial of Black trauma. There is a denial of Black trauma, and we always see it in the sense of like from other races and that we understand that the denial is systematic. However, I question like, do we ourselves deny that trauma? Because we've been conditioned to suppress, to deny all the while our bodies and our minds, you know, reap the effects of this suppression. Yeah, I mean, I think I view it in sense of have we been... Have we ever been given the language to even name the trauma, right? Mm. To name it as trauma. And if we had the language, then would we be ignoring it? Would we deny it? Would we, you know, not highlight the impact of Black trauma on our bodies and our minds? And historically, we see that we have just never been given the language because Black people are still fighting for their full humanity to be affirmed and validated and acknowledged in this country. When you think about our, you know, historically, if we just look in 
the medical field, for example, that black people didn't experience pain. And so experiments happened on us without like any sort of anesthesia or any sort of preparation because we were just not considered human. Or that when we stood in our full humanity, it led to mass destruction of our families, of our communities, of our people. Then that suppression is almost instinctual. I feel like that denial of these aspects of ourselves to name these experiences, it's almost a survival tactic. Correct. what would happen if we were to name this as trauma? And so I do think a part of the work of equity in mental health or justice in mental health helps give Black people the language that they need to know that when a police car pulls behind you and your heart rate starts to go up and you start to sweat, that's not normal. That's just not normative way of being. That's anxiety. That's a high level of stress that then living in that constant state of stress daily is going to take an impact or the fact that you are literally scared to go outside or the fact that you cannot sleep or you just have a persistent sadness. These are not normal things um, that should be a part of the human experience for Black people, but we have internalized it as normal. This is just who yes. we are. This is just yeah. how we are. I was about to say um, that. And so a part of the work is helping us to undo that normalization um, right. and realize that this is this is not how we should experience ourselves. Right, right. And I want to go a little bit further into the article. And you state now that although we are not experiencing slavery or we're not in the era of Jim Crow laws, however, we're still dealing with mass incarceration, redlining, poor economic infrastructure, voter suppression, political exploitation, race-based violence, and the list continues to go on and on. And then you continue to say that the ongoing narrative of racial trauma against Black people in this country causes them to daily face the harsh reality of learning how to be Black, but still be alive, cope, and function. And the word cope popped up in my head, and I was thinking about generational trauma. And I'm like, with generational trauma, we have this form of cultural mechanisms of coping, right? So all these things that we've dealt with throughout the years, but us as a Black people, we've been, like you said, with language, our language has been, don't show emotion, don't show weakness, be strong, we have our own problems, don't talk to other people about your problems. But before we get into the aspect of what has been done to us and is continuing to be done to us, let's actually talk about the trauma that we've experienced within our own communities, amongst our own people, and even how that within different cultures, and we could relate with the Caribbean culture, how the aspect of therapy, the aspect of mental health is not really spoken about. Mental health is stigmatized on so many levels across the Black community, <laughs> right? across minority communities, period, because I see the same thing happening when I when I work with other groups. But there is no such thing as, you know what, you're anxious or you're, you're depressed. I, I mean, for many of your listeners, based on their own identities, I'm sure if they try to talk to their parents about being depressed, it's like, what do you mean you're depressed? Like, no, you have this, you have that, you have education, you have right. money, you have all these things. How could you be depressed? And so no one is having those conversations. And it's very much the pray it away, because I do think religion plays a huge role in that in our communities, mm-hmm. as well as that you just have to push through like, okay, but you, you just have to push through, you just have to keep going. You know, this idea that humanity, emotions, mental well being 
are not a part of the human experience, I think has been passed down through generations because our grandmothers and great grandparents and all of them just had to push through and deal with to survive. Who gives us room to just be human? And I think a part of the work of this generation and onward is to disrupt that type of thinking, to disrupt that narrative and to do the really heavy but necessary work of realizing so much of our traumatic experiences, so much of what we endured is traumatic and that there is a whole landscape of trauma, like we call it in, in the mental health field, that incorporates all your identity but also the environments that you are raised in, all the socioeconomic issues within that environment. And especially for Caribbean individuals, we don't often talk about the mental well-being or, or deteriorating mental health due to acculturation, due to having to migrate and carry your entire family on your back and the pressure to survive and the pressure to prove that this American dream exists. And so trying to fit in, trying to find your place comes with so much. It's so layered. And I tell my Caribbean clients, you know, our parents, our grandparents, they may never really get it, but we get it. And so we have to be a part of changing that narrative. Right. I agree with you a hundred percent. And I like how you said that, you know, migrating to this country and living the American dream and just the pressure to be great. That's how I view it. Like your parents and any migrant coming to the United States or America has that thing of like, you have to obtain the American dream. You have Mm -hmm. to be great. But like our parents have always said, I want you to do better than I have done. When you're speaking about depression and I have anxiety, it's like, what do you have to be anxious about? (laughs) What do you have to be (laughs) depressed about? I'm the one who, you know, suffered the burden of coming to this country. Mm -hmm. Like I'm working my butt off so that you don't have to feel the struggles that I felt, but not understanding that we are encountering other things that affect our mental health. And again, to tap, and this may be a trigger warning to my listeners or maybe a sensitive area, but even when I was talking about within our communities, the idea of when we have dealt with emotional abuse, rape, molestation, Mm -hmm. we don't talk about that. And it's it's so pervasive in our communities. Right, right. You know, and what I've heard from other friends that have dealt with it or from other women that I've heard, it's the one thing of we do not speak. We Uh do not speak against our kind. Because if you're going to do that, then someone's going to go to jail. Then that's going to bring shame on their family. Then it's going to bring shame on us. And then I just see the cycle going and I'm like, hold up. Now you're putting the victim at fault. Yeah. The victim is no longer a victim because if the victim now speaks out, it's your fault. Uh Now brought shame. Maybe it's something you did to cause the molestation or the rape? What were you wearing? And we know that goes across the board for a woman's experience. Mm -hmm. If we're tapping into the Black community or in the Caribbean community, that's what we hear. And it's like you said, it is a cycle that we continue where we never dive in to what affects us mentally and emotionally because our parents, our grandparents, great-grandparents never had room to cope. Mm -hmm. Like you said, we never had room to say, or the language or the resources, mm-hmm. you know, our Caribbean grandparents did not have the American experience of slavery or Jim Crow laws. But if I'm thinking from an American standpoint, uh, a woman or a man that has his grandmother that went through that era, there truly was no room to feel. Oh, absolutely not. <laughs> there and, truly was And no- the risk. 
the risk to feel, right? Like, okay, if I were to speak, what would happen? If I were to acknowledge my humanity, what would happen? And going back just to when we start talking about sexual abuse and sexual assault, rape, molestation in our community, oh my gosh. I mean, it's so prevalent, generationally prevalent also. If many of us were to sit and talk to our mothers or our aunties, our grandmothers, they would share their own stories of being molested or raped or sexually assaulted. But this also pulls patriarchy into this conversation because you can't speak up against the men of the the family, the Mm -hmm. men of the villages, the men of the communities. You just cannot go up against. And so that then becomes a part of the silencing and silencing for years and years and the shame that then comes with that just becomes a part of our identities, a part of our interactions. It just completely disrupts our community and any opportunity to be well individually, collectively. I mean, there's so much to unpack. And I remember a couple of times I preach at different churches and I've spoken on sexual assault and sexual abuse. A few times I partnered with For Real Woman to do an afternoon program. And I was shocked at the number of women who were sharing their own stories. And this was a Caribbean church. And I'm uh, when I tell you generations, I mean, from teens to elderly women, woman for the first time speaking their stories out loud. It really was life-changing for me of how deep-seated the pain, the shame, the trauma, the silencing has been that you can be 60 or 70 years old and you have never spoken that out. Right. right. And so that has lived in your body for decades. That is traumatic. I mean, on multiple layers. So it runs deep. It runs deep. And it's not only the silence, it's the dismissal. Because I had a friend that um, went through her own experience. And when telling her family members, they said, yeah, this is the norm. Just get over it. Uh Because I had to get over it. So now it's Uh like a teaching of how to deal with this. Not only were, let's say you had mothers or grandmothers were silent. But you also had those which taught, no, just dismiss it. You know, are you okay? Uh Did it happen again? Is he still bothering you? If not, then just let it go, you know? So what I read in your article, I actually didn't know this. So this was really cool to find out where you said, in fact, research shows that Blacks have 20% higher levels of mental health problems when compared Uh to white individuals, but access treatment at much lower rate. I guess we're now in this era or our generation where we're shifting the narrative on therapy. There are so many elements that come into play of why our people has not tapped into therapy. When we do want to speak on our issues, even if we are to have depression or anxiety, medication is automatically prescribed to us. Um, Another issue is I can't afford therapy. Mm -hmm. Another situation is lack of education of understanding what therapy is and the different levels of therapy because when we think of therapy we don't see it as therapeutic we see it as psychiatric like mm-hmm. oh I'm just crazy I'm not yeah I'm gonna talk to you <laughs> like I'm not about to sit on somebody's couch or lay on somebody's couch and talk about my problems like I'm some nut you know you hear yeah. that type of type of language what have you witnessed in your line of work the shift that is happening in the black community when it comes from removing those ideologies and coming to a new understanding 
understanding and education on what therapy is. It's been so dope to see the shift happening, particularly amongst our age group. And that number 20%, I think it's grossly misrepresented. I think it's underreported because stigma still does persist. Even Mm -hmm. amongst this generation, with as much progress as we're making, there is still stigma. And so if I were to guess, I would I would think those numbers are much higher, like maybe 40, 50%. Mm. So so there's that. And I question a lot of like research and who were, you know, the studies and things like that. But as, outside of that, it's been amazing to see us begin to shift the conversation around mental health to understand that we all have mental health. Going back to language, there has been a conflation of mental health with mental illness, which are two very different things. (laughs) Gotta break that down. Yeah. I mean, we all have mental health, just like we all have physical health, right? Mm. Sometimes we have good physical health or, or yeah, good physical health, bad physical health, high physical health, low physical health. Mm -hmm. And it's the same for mental health. Sometimes we have high mental health or good mental health. And sometimes we have low or bad mental health, but we all have mental health. We are all prone to the human emotions that we experience, experiences that we have on a daily basis that impact our well-being, just like it will impact us physically. We all do not have mental illness, which is a diet diagnosable condition that when you start talking about, you know, I've been diagnosed with a mood disorder or bipolar disorder or an anxiety disorder or things like that, where there is more criteria that comes into play to be diagnosed with a mental illness. And so I think where we are is that people are beginning to realize, okay, if I've been feeling overwhelmed or if I just went through a breakup or if my job is stressing me out, I could go talk to somebody about that. And I'm just doing this to help improve my mental health. It doesn't mean that I have mental illness. Mm. And I think that's the shift that's helping us to destigmatize mental health in our communities. And so people are becoming more comfortable realizing that like I endured a lot of trauma in my family and I need to talk to someone about it and that that's okay. This is a part of how I take care of my mental health. You know, it's really helping us use the right language, but also as you talked about some of the obstacles in the field, I'm not going to pretend that the mental health field is safe for Black people. It is Mm. not. We are just at the beginning of doing some of that work so that the field is anti-racist and so that the field promotes equity because the reality is there's a long history of racism within the mental health field. The APA, which is the Association of the American Psychological Association, just a month or two ago made a statement apologizing for a longstanding history of harm and racism towards people of color, communities of color within the mental health field, wow. which is the larger field of psychiatry in diagnosing, in medication, in erasing the experiences. And so when Black people say, you know, I don't know if I could trust a therapist, they should feel that way because it has not always been trustworthy. Coupled with the fact that we have been misdiagnosed, we have been rushed to be medicated, our experiences has been erased and minimized. And that only, you know, three to 4% of mental health providers look like us. (laughs) I was just about to say that. That and not yeah. being able to identify with our issues or struggle. Do you watch This Is Us? I do. Okay. Sometimes. 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 But I, ju- I just caught up last okay. night. Okay. Okay. So you saw the episode where, or the episodes where Randall, a Black man, 
who is going to a white woman for therapy. But after a certain point, and I think um, within the show, they wanted to be as current. So they did show, I believe, the George Floyd situation in that episode. And Randall watched it. And a lot of memories started coming back because he was, he grew up in a white home. He was adopted. And he felt that his family did not identify with things that he had to go through. So all of that was rushing back to him. And although the white woman was helping him, it's not like she she wasn't there for him or she wasn't doing the work, but he realized he needed someone that could identify with him and identify with his struggle. And he told her, he was like, I think I'm going to go with a black therapist. And she said, whatever helps you on your journey by by any means you know so like you said the need for even more black therapists more clinical workers help me out here educate me in the sense of like I feel like when it comes to colored people I've seen a lot of colored social workers but when I think of social workers especially growing up it's the women that or the men that work with like ACS or that Mm -hmm. you know comes in the home to (laughs) you know do checkups or sometimes in the school arena you know a social worker could be like slash a counselor but not to the depth of like truly dealing with our people and mental health or even mental illness so what what is the difference or how much in depth like with your title being a licensed um, clinical social worker what does that look like compared to the everyday quote-unquote social worker that we think of that's a layered conversation (laughs) in the field because historically what has happened is that case workers were being called social workers when they were not social workers so what was happening was people who were working with like ACS or taking away children or things like that, working um, to give family resources, they were being called social workers, even though they didn't have social work degrees. And a lot of states now have been legally moving for title protection because that has done a lot of harm to the field of social work and just the misunderstanding of what we do. Yes, there are social workers who work, you know, in child welfare and do a range of other things, but that's one very small pocket of what social workers do. If you want to get into therapy, then you have to be licensed multiple levels. When you have a master of social work degree, then you get licensed as a licensed master social worker. And then if you want to go the clinical track, you have to acquire 3000 clinical hours through, through under supervision through internship work experience before you can apply to be a licensed clinical social worker, which is you want to do clinical work, you want to do therapy. And so we've never really thought of clinical social workers as also being the people who own private practices before the mental health field. You know, now we have licensed professional counselors, we have mental health counselors, the field has grown so much. But historically, it's been psychologists and social workers. Now we're, we're as we needed much more professions to do to be in this work. And so social workers have always been therapists, and they have always Mm. ran private practices, and they have always done therapy, and probably been called psychologists when they were indeed social workers. So yeah, so there's a lot of need for just re-education around what social work is. And I remember when I was 15, and sharing that I wanted to be a social worker, I was told social work is not a real career. Right. Um, Yeah, like you don't make money in social work and all these different narratives in our communities that we hold. And, and so it's dismantling a lot of that, 
to just really help people understand the field a lot more. Would you think that is one of the reasons that we have a lack of social workers or therapists within our community? Absolutely. I talked to a lot of, um, you know, college students now who want to be social workers, who want to go into social work. And I educate them, you know, on what the field really is and how to not get caught up in in all that fluff Mm -hmm. um, that you can do it for the passion do it for the love do it for the people and still make money and it's okay to want to make money and you can't make money as a social worker you can't have an impact as a social worker and just helping understand what the field is so I think it has been shamed in our community. Yeah. It's sort of like, oh, you want to be a social worker? Like, that's something that smart people don't do. Like, you go be a doctor or a nurse or something. Or a lawyer, right. Yeah. Like, why would you want to do social work? But in 2021, especially after coming through 2020, there's a lot of respect that's being put in social workers' name because people are realizing the importance of the work that we do and have always done to uphold society. Yeah. That's amazing. And I am praying that the work that is being done now, such as yourself and like you're saying, college students, that it builds that type of environment for the next generation to come. Mm-hmm. Where, like you said, we're dismantling what we've experienced, what we've seen our parents experience, our grandparents experience, where the narrative is truly, truly shifting. Tell us a little bit more about your organization, Adventist for Social Justice. Like, what is it about and what have you guys done? Yeah, so our goal for Adventist for Social Justice was to help the church become more involved in social justice advocacy. I do a lot of community work. I haven't been involved because I've just moved in the last year, but in being involved in community work and, and, you know, particularly in Black and Brown communities, we are always missing from the table. Seventh-day Adventist, if that's your... Um, religion, not being a part of how we rebuild community, how we are part of resources that communities can tap into. And so the goal of ASJ was to identify some of those core areas in a church's community. Is it education? Is it policing? Mm -hmm. Um, Is it immigration, healthcare, all these different areas? And how can we as a church be a part of the work and the advocacy that's being done on the local level, Mm -hmm. but also on the policy level? Mm -hmm. Um, And so ideally, you know, when we first launched ASJ, we thought our church was ready to go. (laughs) <laughs> and we learned that they were not. And mm-hmm. so we have spent almost five years, I, I say, building a case for social justice work, going around and educating churches and educating members and presentations and laying it out so that people understand the importance of this work that we should be a part of. That's a part of our Christian mandate. And so, yeah, that's where we are with, with ASJ. What was some of the pullback that you were experiencing that it, it's still going on that you're, you know, convincing and educating? Or like you said, it took five years to even have some type of positive response. What is some of the pullback that you were experiencing? I think Adventism is a very much heaven focused denomination, right? And so everything is taught and done in the context of God is coming back soon. And so when God comes back, the world will be better. And so we don't really have a responsibility to the world Mm. we have now. That's a part of the eschatology of Adventism. It's a part of the theology. And it's why we have bought into this idea of us being holy and sacred and the world and don't be of the world. 
Right. And so a lot of people view social justice work as a part of being of the world. Hmm. And because the denomination is so insular, collaborating with other denominations, being involved in community work is just not a norm for some places. Some churches are doing phenomenal with it, but others, it's like, no, we go to church on Sabbath. We need more Bible. We need more spirit. Yeah. We need, we need more revival. For heaven. Yeah, we need more revival and we need to save more people. Right. And community work is not so much about saving people as, as it's about partnering to do work, to help people learn how to save themselves, to provide the resources, right. to empower, to uplift. Our ideology was just a very different approach to churching than Adventists, I think, are used to. And I wasn't born and bred in Adventism, so I don't hold a lot of that deep-seated, heaven-focused ideology. Right. So it's been very hard to navigate that. And when you say that, what I'm thinking about, we're so heaven-focused and we say that Christ is our anchor, but failed to realize Christ was community-focused. Christ was community focused and he realized to get to the minds of the people to have them heaven focused or even kingdom focused, he had to reach their needs. We see many stories in scripture of how he met the needs of the people, how he was in the communities to the point they were like, what is he doing in this area of town? Mm -hmm. This man is a prophet or if he says who he says he is, why dare he come and and be in, let's say, in modern day with the gangsters, you know, Mm -hmm. or in the hood or like what they said, what good can come out of Nazareth, you know, right? Sometimes we're so one-sided and tunnel vision that we forget to see all of the atmosphere around us. And I like to say kingdom focus because although we like to see through scriptures that kingdom ultimately means heaven, but I've come to see that kingdom also means a state of mind Mm -hmm. that God is having or wanting us to reach that the kingdom mentality is before you can even obtain heaven you must obtain the mentality and the character shift so Mm -hmm. i see it as christ saying that it's the mentality shift that happens in order for you to be ready for my coming quote unquote right so at the same time if we're telling people we want to save you we want to get everybody focused let me just throw scripture at you Mm -hmm. but you haven't even touched haven't even touched the many elements that they are going through from a day-to-day basis. And it goes way past just feeding the homeless. I'm sorry. It goes way past feeding the homeless. That's the thing, right? We are good with charity. And um, Dr. Jamie Collisar, he has really for years talked about the need to differentiate charity from justice. Mm-hmm. And Adventists, we do a good job with charity. We feed the homeless, we give away clothes, we give away bread and soup. <laughs> and so we think our work is done. Yeah. Justice is about systems, right? Justice is about policies, it's about laws, it's about, you know, and, and he says the work of justice is to end charity. Because the reason we have to be doing all these other things is because of injustice towards certain communities. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's, that's the need for the unlearning and relearning theology 
in a new and authentic way, like you said, that represents who Jesus was in word and in truth. Right. And, oof, that to, well, well, how did he say it? Say it again, where he said to uh, tap the into The work justice of justice, the work of end. justice is to end charity. My goodness. Because I'm thinking about it and I'm like, I remember going and I was walking, I think it was in Manhattan. And although grateful to receive food or socks or clothing, I remember this woman and she had this look on her face like, all right, thanks for the food. Thanks for the whatever. But you have you have no idea who I am or what I'm going through in these mm-hmm. streets. You don't have any idea what I have to struggle with at night. You don't stay here to speak to me. Mm-hmm. You don't ask me. You, you don't even spend five minutes to be like me. It's the five minutes that you do spend with me is to be like, can I pray for you? Yeah. Do you know what to pray for? Do you, you know what I mean? So right. it's like. We're not tapping into the hearts and minds of these individuals. Like you said, we've become so charity focused, heaven focused, that we not we are not understanding the true fundamentals of what Christ was doing or what he came mm-hmm. to do. We understand that it's not only an Adventism, there's multiple discussions within Christianity, period. Absolutely. That we are not really tapping into uh, social injustices that are happening is specifically in the Black community. And it could be layered also. That could be a whole nother episode because you're not only dealing with doctrine and ideologies that have shaped the minds of individuals of why they should not be involved but you're also dealing with the aspect of race how you Mm -hmm. have these white christian churches that speak of christ but you have your southern baptists you have these other you know denominations that feel like this is not our issue and this is not our problem i'll go to church with you black man black woman Mm -hmm. but to tap into your issues of what you're struggling with go to christ about that pray about that to even go a little further with praying, we also have this dismissal within religion where if someone is dealing with depression or anxiety, you know what I've heard before? That might be demonic. Mm-hmm. You may have demons you're dealing with. Yeah. yeah. Let's pray or let's or let's go and lay hands on you and so forth. And granted, Bring the we, oil. <laughs> okay. And granted, we understand there is an element as believers that there is a spiritual warfare that we're going through, right? No doubt about that. But to dismiss the daily things that are going on, or like you said, not understanding the language of, is this a mental health issue or is this a mental illness issue? Not tapping into that, but automatically saying, oh, this is a um, demonic issue that we need to just pray this away. Not realizing that they could be a chemical imbalance that's going on, or they could be an issue where as simply as this person needs to talk, this person needs to be seen. And although yes, prayer is powerful and it's great, but how much more can it be powerful if you were truly to even tap into that person? I mean, you're hitting it right on the head because I always ask, well, was David demonic? Because if we read the Psalms, David was clearly depressed. Even asking to die, was Jonah demonic? Jonah was suicidal and asking to take, you know, was Jesus demonic? Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane, when he begged his friends to stay with him because the burden was so heavy Mm. and the disappointment that he faced finding out that he had no one and having to reach out to Christ was Jesus demonic no these Mm. there are characters all across the Bible when we read their stories their mental health issues their mental health problems their mental health challenges 
are right there in the stories. Yeah. We don't we don't call that demonic though. We preach on that. We we make it a part of their experience. Why don't we do that for ourselves? Right. Why don't we do that for the people in our congregations? Right. Because it's the very same. Yeah. Um, and so this demonizing of mental health or even of mental illness, I think is just another another way to continue stigmatizing yeah. um, mental mental health. I love those examples that you gave because in scripture, we tend to make it outside of ourselves, not realizing that even the word of God is relational. You Absolutely. know, that everything that we see in scripture, if we believe it to be true and not fables, then these were, these were real human beings with real experiences and we're human also it's maybe a different time frame maybe a different culture but it's still the same human experience what are your thoughts when it comes to alternative medicine some people may be conflicted with modern and alternative because you have also the idea of um you have acupuncture you have nutrition that they say can help deal with depression like a what is one thing i've heard a friend say i think it's saint john's worth warts the supplement that that can help with mood um you have people that say that you can do certain things like reiki or meditation and all these elements that they kind of stay away from the modern medicine idea of prescribing antidepressants and other prescribed medication i mean i've seen both within friends where antidepressants actually made them more depressed Mm -hmm. and you have other people that have stories that said no I'm still on it and it actually helps me to cope Mm -hmm. and then you have the other side of people that are saying like you know what the fact that I changed my diet the fact that I started tapping into herbal supplements that I am truly to elevate my mood the fact that I've tapped into meditation to be still to deal with my thoughts that that has also helped me but you being in the field I kind of want you to give more more of a a light on what have you seen in that arena? I think it's all of the above. I think we will need all of those things, depending on your, you know, genetics, depending on, you know, just your individual chemical makeup. And so sometimes people get started on one medication and it's not a good fit for them. Mm -hmm. And so the doctor has to switch to something else because chemical, you know, imbalances don't go, don't align with every type of medication. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it's, it's a one size fits all. I think regardless of where you stand, if you are in therapy, talk therapy, you also will need good nutrition, um, exercise, your physical health. We have compartmentalized mental health. And I think a part of the work that I would like to do is to ensure that we understand ourselves holistically. Mm -hmm. And so we can't want good mental health and think it's just going to happen through sitting down and talking through things because our nutrition impacts our well-being, because the physical health, exercise, all these things impact our well-being, because sleep impacts our well-being. You know, all these things, sunlight. I mean, just last week, every client that I have had has noted the shift in their mood just because we got more sun last week. All these things impact our overall well-being. And so 
I would love for us as a community to move away from compartmentalizing our mental well-being to realizing that it's going to be a mixture of everything. I do believe medication has its place if you need it. I am a provider. Medication is not always my immediate go-to. You would have to really be presenting with, you know, severe symptoms and just in that, in that hole for a long time for me to, you know, for us to start talking about medication. But I do know that medication has its place. But even when you are on medication, I'm telling my clients to know that it's not a magic pill, mm. um, that you are in control of your body and in your, of, of your mind. And that might mean pulling in some alternative medication. It might mean a lot of different things. With mental illness, and we understand, and you could correct me if I'm wrong, to be uh, some sort of chemical imbalance in the mind, would you believe that things that we may experience on a day-to-day basis, maybe our own personal issues, but like what we were tapping into from the article or what we're dealing with based on 2020, everything that we've dealt with, with loss of family, loss of jobs, racism, viewing, you know, black bodies being killed. Would you say that can cause chemical imbalances or the chemical imbalance is more something that is genetic? I guess I'm trying to understand, can multiple elements that that can cause, you know, anxiety, worry, and all these different things, sadness that after a while in the mind, it can cause a chemical imbalance, which would cause mental illness? That's a good question. I might frame it differently, although I would agree with that. So I don't, mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know that I would frame it as cause chemical imbalance, but I would frame it as traumatic experiences shift our mind, our capacity to cope, our our understanding of ourselves and of our world. And so for people who are living in what, I don't remember the name of the researcher, but they call a set of enduring conditions so mm-hmm. that every day you exist within a racist, traumatic environment, then yes, that can lead to some form of, because in racial trauma research, this association is one way that some people cope with racism, right? So they completely disassociate from their reality because the reality of racism is so painful. And so in order to just cope, in order to just exist, there is a state of disassociation. Now that can be elevated to the point of you are disassociating every day. And then now almost your sense of reality becomes skewed in some way. Okay. And so we can see how that can unfold to, to really become some form of, of psychosis, some form of like delusion. Some people might experience like hallucinating. I mean, these are real experiences based on trauma. And so, so certainly we can see someone who was fine, but how deep they internalize these experiences, their environment Mm. can lead to some really high-end symptoms and and potential diagnosis. And also- one of the reasons why we do biopsychosocial assessments is to try to get a sense of your biology, your environment, all these different pieces that's so important in social work assessments. It's because you might be predisposed to something, meaning this is in your family and you have no clue. What you are experiencing activates what you were already predisposed to based on your genetic, right? And so a lot of times when I ask people, do you have any family of mental, any history of mental health with 
in your family? They say, I don't know. Nobody in my family really talks about it. You don't know what you are predisposed to. And so you now are dealing with traumatic experiences based on racism, based on social injustices, and it activates what you were already predisposed to. And you don't know that you have a great, great grandfather who was probably schizophrenic. And now it has activated some level of your genetic predisposition to that you know it's very layered in that way wow thank you for clearing that up that was very informative so just to kind of wrap things up because I think we said a lot here but I I think (laughs) I thank you for you know just dropping knowledge and gems for us 2020 as we know was high anxiety and it was like you said like I said it was just I think the saddest part alongside the racism, the loss of jobs. The thing that saddened me the most was the amount of people that lost loved ones, but Mm -hmm. mostly could not grieve properly. Could not grieve. Like I'll give an example for myself personally. I lost my grandmother in June. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. My condolences. Thank you. I appreciate that. So it was my mother's mother and she lived in Canada. We couldn't go. Mm -hmm. And how heart-wrenching, yes, for me, because I grew up with my grandmother that it was hard, but my grandmother and my grandfather had nine kids, right? And we know that's the norm back in the days in the Caribbean to have mad Mm -hmm. kids. To know that in Canada, I think it was one uncle and one aunt, but the rest of the children are New York, Florida, other places. None of us could go. Mm. So none of them could go and bury their mother. Mm -hmm. It was heart wrenching. So we had to do it through Zoom, but to see, I must look through a screen to see my mother being buried. Mm -hmm. I can't touch her one last time. I can't do my grieving with my brothers and sisters. Me experiencing that and wanting to be there 100% there for my mother, I could imagine the multiple other family members that had to deal with that. You can't you can't go to funeral homes. Some people I heard that um, their family bodies were just dumped at this big mm-hmm. grave site because <laughs> funeral homes were packed. Hospitals were, were yeah. overworked. It was packed. And if you did do some type of um, wake or memorial, only like 10 people allowed. So multiple family members were not allowed to grieve. And I could imagine how much um, anxiety that brings, how much emotional distress that brings, and the lack of emotional support that we've experienced this year. What are some tips that you can give to help the everyday regular person to deal with anxiety and worry and fear, especially in the climate. Although we're in 2021, we're still feeling, it it may not be as in depth, but we're still feeling the anxiety of what we've been through in 2020. So what are some tips or resources that you can give the day-to-day person just to deal with these things? Man, um, as I listen to you just talk about 2020, the pain, a lot of families will be dealing with that for a long time to come. And I've been saying since the beginning of the pandemic that there is mental health in the pandemic, but I believe post the pandemic, we will really, really be in a deep, deep, dark place regarding people's mental health when we get out of this moment and people begin to recall what they went through. It's going to be hard. It's scary to think about as a provider, but we, in order, some of my regular tips, going back to what we shared earlier, physical health is going to be critical to how we navigate and endure 
some of these challenges. We have to ensure we are getting good sleep. We have to ensure we are exercising, taking care of our nutrition. And I say that because I know we didn't get a chance to talk about it today, but racism and injustice and all the other elements of what the Black community is dealing with is there's a, a, a term that Geronimus quotes called weathering. It is literally deteriorating our bodies, our tissues. The concept called weathering um, talks about the toll, the physical and mental toll of living in a racist society for okay. black and brown people. And that when we look at our cell tissues, we can see that there is a deterioration based on the level of chronic stress that we are navigating every day, the heightened levels of anxiety and depression, and how it has increased when we talk about high blood pressure, when we talk about obesity, when we talk about, um, you know, even now the conversation around maternal um, health and all these Correct. different layers, it is weakening our bodies. And we can see the biological aging, even as young as 20. Um, and so I like to say it's not just what's happening to black skin, but it's also what's happening beneath black skin, which mm. is why I push the black does crack idea. Nutrition and health is going to be critical to how we couple to ensure that we're taking care of, again, that holistic piece and not compartmentalizing our well-being. I also like to say connecting with communities, um, organizations, individuals, where you feel affirmed, where you feel seen, where you feel safe is going to also be important. Taking moments to rest. You know, we say rest is an act of restoration. It's an act of resistance because society has said that we have to work so much harder. We are working ourselves to death. And so we have to start to take our PTO days. We have to start to take our sick days. We have to start to prioritize sitting down and doing nothing and knowing that you're not lazy if you just have a day on right. the couch to do nothing. So right. the, the, we are overworking ourselves. And so it's really impacting our minds and our bodies. And so we have to begin to peel some of that back. There are, if you need like therapy, um, there are, there's the Loveland Foundation who, okay. you, you know, they provide free therapy, they pay for free therapy services for black women. And so I think they pay for about four sessions, you apply and they are raising funds and things like that. I have seen a number of clients through them. And so I encourage all black women to, and black men, I know Taraji P. Henson has her foundation, the Boris Henson Foundation, who they pay for free therapy for black men. And so accessing some of these resources where you can get your therapy covered call if you have insurance calling your insurance finding out do I have behavioral health benefits as well because a lot of times we don't ask that question even though our insurance might cover or through um, EAP at your job so that you can get therapy for free. These are some mm -hmm. of the resources that are out there. And, and I will say, you know, really sitting and, and talking to the people in your family, finding out what is in your family, you know, what are some of the behaviors so that we can begin to understand ourselves as well and begin to know, might we be predisposed for anxiety or for depression? How do we begin to understand if I'm feeling down and sad for about two weeks, loss of energy, no interest in the things that I'm, you know, I used to be interested in, particularly during this time, we've seen 
some people's anxiety. They used to be life of the party. They used to be, you mm -hmm. know, the center of attention. And now they don't really talk to people anymore. They've isolated a lot. These are all behaviors for us to begin to think about and identify and explore the changes in ourselves. I like to ask people to think about if you feel like you might be anxious, how is it showing up for you? Because anxiety can show up physically. It can show up mentally. It can show up behaviorally. Some of us are eating more, eating less sleeping more, sleeping less. Yeah, you know, like these are some of the ways that we are being anxious without understanding that it's our anxiety mm. that's leading these changes in our function and in our behavior. So how do we understand ourselves is a, is a huge part of, I think, how we cope, particularly during the pandemic, you know, that connection piece, ensuring that we're not you know, remaining isolated from our friends, even if it's through Zoom. And I know we're all burnt out, but phone call, a text, you know, trying to connect in some ways, I think will be some of the ways that we cope through um, this moment. And it's one step at a time and we have to do it together. Mm -hmm. And for those of us who belong to systems like faith-based communities is ensuring that we're using those spaces to also provide resources to people to also provide healing spaces where yeah. people can come together and talk about what it was, what it's like to not be able to be present to bury your mother yeah. in the pandemic and how many people have gone through that and how can our churches create spaces Mm -hmm. for people to come together and talk about some of these things and find support. Right. I love all that information. My mind was just like going. Thank you again, Tiffany, so, so much for coming on Thank this you. podcast and just sharing your knowledge and the work that you do. I wish you many more blessings on everything you've done. Oh, like I said, you. you know, we we've known each other um, and, you know, have bumped into each other through church and different events, but, you know, through social media and word of mouth, I've definitely seen the work that you've done. And that's why I chose you to come on this oh, episode, thank you. <laughs> you know, cause I see the work that you're doing on multiple levels. It's not only uh, faith-based. I see all the work that you're doing and I want to congratulate you and wish you many more blessings on that. Oh, thank you so much. And congrats on your podcast. Thank um, you. It's an honor to be here. You know, just getting these stories and information out to the communities is critical. And together, us all doing our part is how we move our community forward. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. I hope you've gained some knowledge, insight, and clarity in this moment, creating your own inner discoveries. Tune in again with new episodes released every Tuesday. And most importantly, head over to at She Discovered Podcast on Instagram to interact with me and receive more tips and info relating to all topics discussed. As always, you are appreciated. <laughs>